All right, grab your Bibles, open them up to Proverbs chapter 2. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. Um, As AJ said, I'm a pastor of Communion Church in Mount Vernon, and one of the reasons why it is really nice to be here today is um, we are going through the book of 2 Samuel at Communion Church, and if you know anything about that book, there is a lot of death and murder and carnage. We happen to be in the middle of that. Um, So I've had quite a few sermons in a row that have been um, about the depths of sin, and so it's nice to um, kind of have a palate cleanser and be in Proverbs here for a week. Um, But I'm also uh, pretty excited about it because I love the book of Proverbs. Um, I've made it a a habit of reading through Proverbs on a regular basis. I will admit I'm not as diligent as Mike's dad. He mentioned in the first week that his dad um, reads through it every month. Uh, but I have read through Proverbs quite a few times, and it's just a, a place for me to go back to and kind of be reminded of God's wisdom. But the benefit of going back through Proverbs over and over is also, is also because it, it's different every time, right? Depending on what's going on in my life, depending on kind of what I bring to it, different things kind of jump off the page, and so on one pass, as I'm reading through, I'll be like, man, that, that verse right there is speaking to exactly what is going on in my life right now. And then next time I read through it, I actually will read something, and I'm like, was that even there the last time? Because I, I don't even remember that verse, but man, that is exactly what is going on in my life right now. And the, and the reason for that, as your pastors have already noted, is, is that Proverbs was not written to kind of be a set of doctrines for you to master and move on from. It's not like read this, memorize it, all right, and on with the next thing. This, uh, Proverbs are here to shape you, to, to kind of conform you over time, and, and that's part of the reason why um, it, it works that way. But it's also a great reminder for me uh, when I come to something um, numerous times, find it speaking in a new way every time, that the Word of God and the wisdom of God is so much greater than human knowledge. And not just greater, um, but the process of going to it and kind of finding these new things every time um, reminds me that I am always shifting. I'm always changing. I'm believing new things, and yet God's word doesn't change. And so the reason why on the 25th pass through I'm finding something new is not because God's word is becoming relevant, right? It's that it always was. And this gives me a firm place to put my feet Right, the firm ground that I stand on is the eternal and all-encompassing truth of God. And Proverbs is here to build our confidence in that. Now, the wisdom literature of which Proverbs is part aims then to connect the wisdom of God to our lives. Uh, we see this in all of them, but there is a special relationship between two of them that I want to point out. And the two that are, are kind of tied together in relationship are Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. A way to describe the relationship between these two would be to say that Ecclesiastes kind of gives a defensive, some people would say pessimistic, approach, right? It shows how everything in this life is fleeting. Everything in this life leads to a place where you find this will not fulfill me. Proverbs then takes an offensive approach, not offensive, sometimes offensive, but offensive, right, being it pushes us towards true wisdom. And so I want to read actually the last portion of Ecclesiastes, because I just think it sets up Proverbs so well. Uh, Ecclesiastes ends by saying this, 
The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so Ecclesiastes ends kind of um, leaving us wanting to know what are these collected works? What, what is this wisdom? How can I keep God's commandments? And then Proverbs comes along to go, let me help you out with that. Let me show you what this wisdom is and let me show you why you can trust it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 2 of Proverbs is all about the benefits of God's wisdom. Let's get into it. Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, My son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So chapter 2 starts with this kind of father and son uh, motif. We saw that already in chapter 1. We'll see it quite a bit throughout the rest of the book. And I think the best way to understand Proverbs is actually to think of it as a father late in life, kind of trying to hand off all of the wisdom that he has to his son. Kind of going, I'm not going to be here forever. I want to share this with you. I want to give this to you so that you have something to live by. Now this can get a little bit confusing, however... Because sometimes it seems like the father in Proverbs is referring to our earthly fathers, and other times it seems to be referring to our heavenly father. And so we just kind of want to go, which one is it? Right? I want to know it's one and not the other. But the Bible doesn't divorce them from each other in this, in this kind of conversation about wisdom. Instead, they're always kept connected. We get some help from this uh, with this from theologian Uh, Craig Bartholomew, who tells us this about the Proverbs. He says, in Proverbs, there are two types of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of humans. And the bridge between these is the doctrine of creation. And so the way to understand this relationship between kind of both, both God's wisdom and human wisdom, our heavenly father and our earthly fathers, is to have a robust doctrine of creation. Right? Knowing how God designed and, and kind of the purpose of how he designed helps us to live wisely. And so in creation, we see a distinction made between the creator and the creation. As creator, God is the source of all wisdom, and we then are products of his wisdom. In other words, God has ordered and designed this entire world um, to, to reflect his wisdom. His wisdom is built into the systems and the order by which this world functions. And God has chosen to instill his wisdom in the world through parents as a reflection of our relationship with the Heavenly Father. Parents then are given the responsibility of shaping human beings from birth until the point at which they are sent out in the world to fend for themselves. I think that used to be about 14, now it's 32 I'm just kidding. Right? 
But your kids are dependent on you to know how to, to live and, and, and to grow and to learn, which is a somewhat terrifying, terrifying reality. Which is why it's so helpful that with the responsibility, God also provides parents with the means to get there. We don't have to be brilliant. We don't have to understand all of the shifting philosophies of our culture. We simply need to teach our kids to rely on God's wisdom given to us. He gives us the cheat sheet. And so we follow our father as we call kids to, our kids to follow us. And this is not something new. This is the model that God has gave to his people in the very beginning. When he gives them the law, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The idea then is that our lives are lived in obedience to God and then we share the reason that we live this way with our children. We talk about why we make the decisions that we do. We talk about why we're saying no to something that your friend's parents are saying yes to. This requires more than the just drawing hard lines as parents. It's about building a foundation of how this world relates to God and a recognition that we are living out God's principles in a world that is in rebellion to him. And the model that it gives us in Deuteronomy here is to trust so deeply in God's way that that is then flowing out into how we do everything. Every part of our life reflects our submission to God. Knowing that God has designed parents then to be the means by which their children are formed, this should put urgency into us as parents. We should take very seriously what we have been given. But the fact that God gives us the cheat sheet, he gives us the means, he gives us his wisdom should give us confidence in this. Right? A lot of parents are terrified that they're going to mess their kids up. Here's the truth. God has given you everything that you need. If you didn't have a great father and you're going, I don't know how to be a dad, go to God's wisdom. If you're like, I, I don't know how these things are done. Again, I, I haven't read the right books. Go to God's wisdom. We don't need to have every answer for our kids. But we need to teach them that there is an answer. We need to spend our lives pointing our children to the source. It's our job to encourage our kids to trust in God's way. And so these first five verses here, are it's a father encouraging his son to see God's truth. Now, in one sense, that doesn't seem like something that is too shocking. That doesn't seem like something that should really be controversial. Yet we live in a world that declares that there is no truth. Or really a better way of saying it would be, we live in a world that says there's no fixed truth to discover. We live in a world where people want to believe that everything is simply this raw material by which we create meaning. That means human beings get to decide what morality is, what virtue is, what marriage is, what gender is. And the driving force behind all of it is the individual. Our world wants us to believe that there is potential meaning, but it requires us to give it value. And Proverbs says... Nope. Proverbs instead encourages us to root ourselves to a fixed truth. That this world was designed by a creator for a purpose. 
And meaning is found through aligning ourselves with his order. It is a truth that is meant to be found. Which is why it says here, we should search for it as for hidden treasures. But the encouragement is not just to search for it. It's not just that this wisdom exists, but that it is available to us. What it says is that if we submit ourselves to God, if we fear him, then we are actually able to grab hold of this wisdom. That is an amazing promise. We have access to the knowledge of God. And not just in a spiritual way. This knowledge, this wisdom comes in, and it, it, again, it is, it is the story of how this world works. God gives us descriptions of how we are desi- designed to function as people, as families, as communities. But we will only ever, actually ever find it by submitting to him, by actually following him and obeying him in the first place. So what does it mean then to submit ourselves to his order? Well, in the realm of parenting, it means that we prioritize our home to value the fruits of the Spirit over whether our kids are successful or popular or attractive or fill in the blank with whatever else you're being told you're supposed to be doing. We believe the gospel and its implications of love and service and forgiveness and grace. Our lives become about conforming to the Sermon on the Mount, not winning political arguments or fighting for power. Parenting then begins with first investing in God's way and then modeling faithfulness to our kids. And we need to be consistent. One of the things that I see a lot of Christian parents doing is agreeing with God's law when it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord and honor your father and mother. Sometimes we even make our kids memorize those verses. Right? They talk back. What does the Bible say? But we come up with really good excuses when God says things like, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now this is important. Because your kids are learning what honor and submission look like by watching you. And if you are not submitting to God in a place that his word has said, this is what you shall do, then you're just picking and choosing. You're not submitting to God. You're leading the way. And that's the truth that you're instilling in your children. It's important. You want to know why? Because your kids can sniff out hypocrisy. I have six children. My two oldest are teenage boys. Teenage boys like nothing more than to call you out. And the worst part about it is, they're often right. Right? But dad, you said, no. Honor your father and mother. When my life does not match what I'm telling them is right, they're going to see it. And you know what? They're going to follow it. If I live a life that says, you shall submit to me, but I submit to no one, that's how they're going to learn to live. But I think this is also important because this is an aspect of worship. 
Yes, we're talking about gaining wisdom. Yes, we're talking about benefiting from God's order. But we're also talking about how our lives are an act of worship. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so our following of God, our obedience to him, our submission to him, is not because we understand how it will all work out. It's not because we necessarily agree with it or feel like it. It's that we trust him. And through worship, we believe that God is going to work in us. He's going to do his work. So let me summarize what I've said up to this point. We recognize God for who he is. He's the creator. He is the source of all truth, and we obey him then as an act of worship. As we do, he is conforming us to line up with his truth. And so rather than doing what we think is best, we trust that God's order is better. And what this chapter does from here on out is it shows us the benefits of that. It shows us what we get as the people of God by following him. This is what it says in verse 6. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil for men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Now, to make sense of what's being said here, we need to add to our doctrine of creation. See, while God created everything in line with his wisdom, he also gave human beings the ability to worship him or to worship something else. And every person to some degree or another has turned away from God's wisdom and chosen to invest in idolatry. We see the beginning of this in Genesis chapter 3, but it's in Romans 1 where we really start to see what this does to us, how this affects us as people. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now that's not just a description of Adam and Eve, and it's not just a description of people who are not in Christ. It's a description of all people when we choose anything other than God's way. When we do not worship God through obedience, our thinking becomes futile, our hearts become darkened, and we act as fools. And the foolishness of sin destroys the good that God has created. Right? Sometimes when we read fools, and the, the, the term fools is going to come up through Proverbs all the time, we think of just kind of the person who's not real smart, who's doing kind of fool, foolish things. But foolishness is actually acting against God. Foolishness is destruction. Foolishness hurts people. All of the pain and the suffering and the injustice that we see in the world... That's foolishness. It comes from turning from God's wisdom. And what this means is we can solve all the problems in the world, right? We can heal the world, 
by simply getting everyone to worship God and obey him completely. Done. Simple. If we could just figure out how to make that happen, everything would be gone. I do think it's important for us to realize that that community, that, that kind of life is waiting for us, right? That is the description that we get of heaven. Heaven is all of God's people in the presence of God, obeying him completely. That's what we have to look forward to. That's where we're going. There are no tears, no death, no pain. The reason why there is no bad in heaven is because no one is turning away from God's wisdom. Now, we're not there yet. But as we await this heavenly glory, God gives us his wisdom to protect us from the pain of living in foolishness. And that's what this section is about. When we learn to love God's law, we see that it is not a list of do-nots keeping us from happiness. But God's law is God's wisdom keeping us from harm. That's what it tells us here. It is a shield for those who walk in integrity. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. And so submitting to God is actually a great protection for us because it keeps us from the ends of our own foolishness. Let me show you what this looks like. I'll use a few uncontroversial issues. Let's say sex, marriage, divorce. Sure. What could go wrong? Let me talk to you about what God's ideal for these things are. What does the Bible say is the purpose for these? How has God created these to function? Well, first, in God's created order, marriage is the one flesh unification of a man and woman for the sake of glorifying God and raising faithful children. It is the fulfillment of the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He then gives us marriage to help us accomplish that. Sex, then, is the physical reflection of this one flesh relationship. It is to be in marriage, to keep health within the marriage, and also to help with the production of children. Marriage itself is a lifelong commitment that the Bible connects to Jesus' love for us, which is to say we commit to another individual in the way that God commits to us for all time, right? That is in Ephesians 5. Our devotion to our spouse, then, is a recognition that the reason why we are this, with this person or the act of one flesh is God's work. God has brought these two together. God has done the unifying. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's where the Christian idea of divorce comes from. Marriage also is a place to live out the humility of Philippians 2. To love another person as or even more than you love yourself. Mutual submission as as complementary pieces is how it's described in Ephesians 5. And then the children of this godly marriage then are not just a responsibility or a byproduct. They are a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127 tells us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Well, if people would actually conform to that and live to that, 
Right? There would be no sexually transmitted diseases, no out-of-wedlock pregnancies, no single moms save for widows, no custody battles, no unwanted children. Even if your children push you right to the brink of that, you would remind yourself what God has said about your responsibility towards children. And in this, we would be spared from a great deal of the pain and suffering that exists in our culture right now. Kids would be raised in a stable environment. The community would benefit because our court system would not be overrun by parents fighting over children and, and whatnot. And so living out God's design for sex and marriage is a shield from all of that destruction. All that surrounds these issues, it protects us if we actually submit to it from all of the alternatives, all the things that happen, the consequences of our sin. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. That is the most idealistic view I've ever heard, and I agree. Right? That doesn't, the world doesn't really work like that, correct? But that's because this broken world is filled with all manner of people rejecting God's way. Whether we're talking about workaholism or abusive spouses or pornography or we could keep going with this, right? But there's all these ways that we decide to pollute and work against God's ideal. There are all kinds of ways to destroy this vision. But let me be clear, that doesn't mean that the vision is wrong. God's wisdom doesn't fail because we fail to live up to it. People refusing to follow God does not mean his plan doesn't work. I've always loved how G.K. Chesterton puts this. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Which is to say the failure that we see in this world, even among Christians, is not in the places where they're in line with God. It's in all the places where they aren't. And we spend all of our time looking at the brokenness and the consequences of sin. You know what happens? We get overwhelmed by it. Not only overwhelmed, but we start to actually begin to doubt God's way. Chesterton goes on in this same book. The book is titled, What is Wrong with the World? To say, what is wrong is that we do not ask what is right. We focus on the exceptions, we focus on the failures, and we miss the ideal. And so what Proverbs is doing, and it's going to continue to do this, is bring us back to the ideal. Bring us back to right, right, that, that kind of pure, unadulterated wisdom of God so that we can see how beautiful it is and what a great gift it is that he has given it to us. This section now goes on or this chapter goes on to show us that God's wisdom helps us not to get caught in webs of deceit. This is what it says in verse 16. It says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to the death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. So the last section showed us how obedience protects us from the consequences of our own folly. Now we see God's wisdom helps us to spot foolishness before we ever get caught in it. That is to say, it helps us from, to, it protects us from our ignorance, but it also builds us up in discernment. When we invest in God's wisdom then, when we practice it, when we live by it, when we do our best to follow him, we become conformed to his way. 
We read Romans 12, 1 earlier. Verse 2 goes on to say this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so rather than being conformed to this world by just kind of going along with whatever everyone else is doing, God transforms us through obedience and gives us tools of discernment. Why is discernment so important? Well, it's important because this broken world is not neutral. In the beginning, creation was good, and while human beings had the opportunity to choose their own wisdom, they weren't pulled towards it. But now, we are sinful. This world is sinful, which means we have to work not only against our own flesh, but we need to be prepared to stand against temptation after temptation after temptation that tells you God's way is not the way. I have something to offer you that is better. And I'm not just talking about temptations to fall into a specific sin. I'm talking about the temptation for us to begin to doubt God's truth. To put our trust and our hope in something other than the wisdom of God. In Proverbs, this pull, this this temptation is represented by the forbidden woman or the adulteress. This character comes up again and again, again throughout the book. The idea is that in the same way that men are drawn into affairs by beauty and smooth talk, we can easily be drawn into trusting the world's wisdom, often by the same things. Now, the best protection against an affair is a healthy marriage. Likewise, the best way to not be lured into foolishness is to be faithful. By knowing what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect, it helps us to very easily recognize what is false. When we know what God's way is, then anything that's not God's way is easy to spot. So the more that we understand what is true, the easier it will be to identify what isn't. And the more we know about God's character and God's way and God's word, the greater the contrast will be with truth between truth and error. This becomes immensely important then when we understand that God's truth is not just about doing what is right. It's about living in harmony with who we were created to be. God is helping to form us into the people that we, really, that we already are. To live in a way that is in harmony with the universe around us. And so God doesn't call us to follow his law to kind of go, see if they can make it. Right? It's not just a test. It's not him kind of going, man, I need to show them this so that when they fail, then I can come up behind them and save. No, what he is constantly doing is going, this is the good way. This is the truth. This is here to protect you from yourself. So it isn't just about keeping us from harm, though. The last three verses of this chapter, um, we see that God's wisdom it leads us to flourishing. This is what it says in verse 20. It says, So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. God's promises always have these short and sort of long-term promises. The way of the good and the path of the righteous referred to here in verse 20 uh, are no exception. 
The short-term promise here is that um, following God's wisdom will provide the structure for a full life. So our question there is like, what does a full life require? Right? What, what does it mean to live a full life? What is, what is necessary for flourishing? Well, I read quite a few psychology articles this week um, trying to figure out what answer uh, the world gives. I, I got quite a few answers. Um, I will say that there is some commonality even there to go, what does, so sort of, what are the root parts of a life that lead us to be able to flourish? And three things that were kind of listed over and over and over again are that we need identity, we need to know who we are, we need belonging, we need to know where we fit, and we need a sense of purpose to know where we are going. The existence of these three things gives human beings the ability to actually flourish in this life. And the beauty is God gives us all three of those in his order. So let me show you what that looks like. Identity. When we embrace God's definition, we know that we were people created to worship God. We are also people who have sinned. We have stolen God's glory for ourselves. We have turned away from him to other things. I can tell you what, if that's the end of the story, terrible, right? But the gospel tells us that we are also redeemed people. We have been bought with a price. That price was Jesus Christ taking on all of our sin and putting it to death on the cross. This makes us part of God's family, heirs to the promise of eternal life. And what it means when we take that on, when we die to ourselves, it means that I am no longer defined by my successes and failures. Right? Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'll tell you what, that just takes the weight off of your shoulders. Who are you? I'm God's. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how successful you are. It's not about how, how accomplished you are. All of those things our world not only measures us by, but I'll tell you what, makes us feel terrible about ourselves by. All of those go away when we say, I belong to God. He is my identity. Second thing is belonging. That reality definitely brings along some belonging. We now belong to God. We're part of his family. But with that, we're told that we belong now to a different kingdom. One that overlaps with this world, but, but isn't quite the same. It never quite fits right. First Peter, um, which is a book that it really, really deals with this issue of living in the world, but not, or like, how do we fit here? He has all these terms that he refers to Christians as. He calls them strangers, aliens, elect exiles. Right? These are all descriptions of people who, who belong to a different place. We don't fit here. It's because we were created to exist in a world without sin that is submitted to the Creator. Now, in a sense of belonging, that isn't the best answer. You don't belong. But that gives us an answer that helps us to actually make sense of the world around us and to suffer well. See, when God says that things will go well for the righteous, we want that to be simple. Be good, good things happen. I obey, 
I get everything that I want. There are churches that will teach you that, by the way. Don't go there. See, the problem is this twisted world is filled with all these sinful variables. Doing the right thing doesn't always lead to a good result. Sometimes you follow God and you do exactly what you're supposed to and you know what? The person that you have put all this trust in does not reciprocate. But knowing why that is helps us to give peace, helps give us peace in times of trouble and it helps us to keep pressing into God's order even when we're not getting the results that we want. Faithfulness does not always produce the temporary results that we desire. But what it does is keeps us continually connected to the one who is working all things together for good. We will belong. We will feel at home. We're not going to find heaven on this earth. The third thing is purpose. Our purpose as human beings is to grow in our love for God. This is what we were created for, to be worshipers. This is the heartbeat of heaven. And it is at the core of everything that God is doing in this world, conforming us and shaping us to love him more. When you embrace that, then every moment of this life can be measured through that. How can I use this moment to glorify God? How can I use this moment to glorify God? And guess what? If everything's going terrible, you can use that moment to glorify God. If everything's going wonderful, you can use that moment to glorify God. And all of a sudden, all of these ups and downs that used to just kind of carry our emotions, they all of a sudden are taken captive for him. The ups and downs in life are not measured by what we have or what others think of us, but in how they prepare us for glory. God's orders, God's order, sorry, gives us hope in the short term and shalom or perfect peace in the end. And that's where the long-term promise is. Right? The long-term promise is that we will be in a place where we belong. The upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. God's people will dwell together in his presence in a way that reflects his wisdom perfectly. A home where we are not strangers and aliens. A place where the sinful variables don't exist. A home where we don't have anxiety or depression or any of the other things that, that, that pull on us while we live in this world. We will live with God's people in his presence. And living to God's order in this world is a continual reminder of where it is that we are going and what we have waiting for us. And so in a world that tries to convince us that there's another way or that God's order is one option among many, that wisdom can be found apart from him, let us learn to say, nah, nope, don't want it because we already have something greater. Let us instead conform our lives to God's order, 
not to earn something from him, but because he's already given us everything that we need. Right? All of this kind of benefits of wisdom, this is all the secondary effects. This is because we have Christ. That's the primary gift. And yet we have a God who pours out grace upon grace. He gives us salvation. He also gives us everything that we need to function in this life. He gifts us his wisdom. We deserve none of this. His wisdom is just another way in which he blesses us. And so let's, let us learn to live a life to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let's respond to this God who has given us so much by actually following him, obeying him, worshiping him. Let's respond right now by giving him the worship and honor that he deserves in song, in communion, and in giving. Let me pray and move on. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. There are so many ways in which we, we think we're so smart. We think we've found some brilliant solution that you hadn't thought of. And all the while, you were working in millions of ways in our life to protect us, to conform us. We thank you for loving us when we continue to act in such unlovable ways. And we pray that you would help us to see what this goodness and grace that you have given to us looks like. Help break down all of these, all of these walls that we have created in our hearts, all of these excuses that we have, have given ourselves. Help us to see your wisdom for what it is. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and, and, and for the fact that he makes it possible for us to benefit in all of these ways. Help us to never take that for granted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.